I um, forgot something this morning. I was here early. I forgot something this morning, so I hopped in the car to go pick it up from my house. And on the radio, uh, a sermon popped up from a local church. And the guy who was preaching, he said a lot, but he didn't say very much. And man, that was a missed opportunity. I want you to know that our goal when we open up the Word is to swim together in the Word. We want to dive deep in the Word. And so sometimes we're going to risk the excess of getting really knee-deep in the Scriptures. But I'm okay with that. Amen? And that's a gift from God. Okay. I don't know what that means. <laughs> let's, uh, let's pray together. It's only by your grace, Father, that we are given this sweet gift to open your word and to see it and to follow it to your kingdom and your son who sits on the throne. You open eyes, you soften hearts, and I ask that you would do it this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, I'm going to try and control the screen from here. So, good luck. Wish, wish me luck. I don't think it's going to work. Okay. Well, that's okay. Luke, good luck, man. Try and keep up. Did that work? I think that worked. No? Okay. Never mind. Okay. Uh, we have been talking about the Sermon on the Mount for three weeks. This is the third. And our main argument this morning uh, will be what we have been discussing for now several weeks, which is that the Sermon on the Mount, and especially the Beatitudes, are a fulfillment of a promise made to the people of Israel 700 years prior in the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, we have the promise of a messenger coming anointed by the Holy Spirit to bring good news to the poor. So I want to start this morning by reading that one more time, and then we're going to spend most of our time in Psalm 5. So uh, read with me. It'll be up on the screen, but read with me in, uh, in, in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant all those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, 
the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. What I want to highlight this morning from this passage is what we discussed last week. Namely, that the hope of Isaiah's song is not merely wealth for the poor. And it's not merely freedom for the captive. And it's not merely comfort for the grieving Israelite. The hope of Isaiah's song is the transformation of the poor and the grieving and the captive into oaks of righteousness. Okay, If you stopped reading at... uh, at oil of gladness instead of mourning, garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, it would do an injustice to this promise because there's a reason that the poor are made wealthy. There's a reason that the, that the, the mourning heart is, is comforted. There's a reason that the, the captive is freed. And that reason is that the Lord chose to transform the broken sinner into a righteous son. Okay, Oaks of righteousness. That's the promise of the Gospel. In Christ. Okay, so that hope in Isaiah 61, that hope of a transformation from the poor in spirit into an oak of righteousness, that hope is embodied in the Beatitudes. Okay, what you see in the Beatitudes is the making of righteous oaks. So we're going to read this morning in Psalm 5. And what I want you to see in Psalm 5 is this transformation, this transformation from poor in spirit to oaks of righteousness, okay? I'm gonna, I want you to, to, to watch this linear trajectory that's up here on the screen, and I'm going to read you the promises that Jesus proclaims to his people. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Okay, and what we argued last week was that this is not merely four independent characteristics of people who may or may not be kingdom citizens. This is actually a trajectory. Okay, if you're, if you're headed to the kingdom, you start at poor in spirit, and the Lord, by the grace of of God in the, in the work of Christ by the sanctification of the Spirit, you are being transformed from poor in spirit to someone who mourns over their sin, right? And, and so I want to really quickly review those four pieces, and then we're going to transition and try and cover the rest of the Beatitudes this morning. So we argued last week that recognition of spiritual poverty leads to mourning over our sin. Okay, recognition of spiritual bankruptcy leads to mourning over our sin. And mourning over sin highlights the patience of God, right? When we are reflecting on the darkness of our sin and the audacity of our sin, and we remember that we're still alive, we see God's patience three-dimensionally, right? So we're reflecting on our sin and we're mourning over our sin, and all the time it's highlighting the patience of God. Okay, that's the backdrop, all right? And reflecting on the patience of God makes mourners meek. You don't see the audacity of your sin and the patience of God, and then somebody cuts you off on the highway, and you shake your fist and, and pray for damnation, right? Right? 
because reflecting on the patience of God causes you to exhibit the patience of God. All right, Reflecting on the patience of God makes mourners meek. And remembering God's mercy and patience against the backdrop of your sin fosters a hunger for righteousness. Okay, That's what I think is going on here in the first four promises in the Beatitudes. So these are characteristics of kingdom citizens. They work in sequence and in concert to transform the broken sinner into a righteous son. Here's what I mean. Day one of following Jesus, you probably have a pretty significant comprehension of your spiritual bankruptcy. That's why you started the conversation with Jesus in the first place. But as you walk with Christ and you start to see the display of His kindness and His mercy and His grace and His patience, and you reflect on who you've been, it stirs your heart to mourn. Okay? So there's a sequence there, right? You, you recognize your spiritual poverty, and as you begin to, to sort of digest the nature of your spiritual bankruptcy and why you're spiritually bankrupt, namely your own sin, you begin to mourn over your sin, which changes the way that you think about the sin of others. You're reflecting the patience of God towards others. Meanwhile, seeing and reflecting God's patience makes you long to be like Him, and as you're longing to be like Him, you're transformed into this hunger and this thirst for righteousness. Okay, there is a linear trajectory here, right? That's what I mean by sequence. But what I mean by concert is, when you start to hunger and thirst for righteousness... That's not when you stop mourning over your sin, right? Hungering and thirsting for righteousness doesn't mean you're done with the meek phase, right? I was meek for about three weeks, and then I started really hungering and thirsting after righteousness, which means I can be a jerk to people now. That's not how it works, right? It's a concert. Every day you follow Jesus, you ought to have a further comprehension of your spiritual bankruptcy, Right? And you ought to have a further comprehension of the nature and the gravity and the darkness of your sin. And you ought to reflect even further the patience of God towards the sin of others. Right, And all the time you're craving the righteousness of God, the presence of God. All right? So it's, it's in sequence, yes, but it's also in concert. Okay? Okay. Now, I think we're ready to deal with the rest of these promises. So if you don't have your Bibles open to to Matthew 5, please do that now. We are on page 809 of the Pew Bible. And I know that because I left my Bible at home. (laughs) Okay. All right. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive Mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Okay, here, here's what I think is going on here. The poor in spirit are merciful. Okay, the poor in spirit are merciful. The relentless pursuit of righteousness involves an ever deepening recognition of sin and results in an ever deepening appreciation for mercy. Do you see what I'm saying here, as you recognize the gravity and darkness and and weight of your own sin, as you pursue righteousness, 
you are gaining a further and further comprehension and respect for the mercy of God. And as you become a mercy craver, right, you're exhibiting that mercy towards others. Okay? I want to show you what this looks like in the Scriptures. I'm going to read from Titus 3. Okay? Titus 3. Remind them, this is Paul talking to Titus, who's a pastor. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. And that's the end of the letter. It's not the end of the letter. It was a joke or a trick. (laughs) Why? Okay. Paul follows this statement, answering the question, why? Why should I be... The rulers he's referring to are Roman Caesars and Roman governors. And we know what they're like, right? I mean, just think, just reflect for a moment on why Pontius Pilate decided to kill Jesus. It's because of what the people wanted. He didn't want to deal with all these complainers. They didn't want to riot on his hands. So yeah, just kill this innocent man. That's, that's the rulers that Paul is, is, is telling Titus to remind people to be subject to. Okay? This is not, like, be courteous to nice people. Right? This is, this is be courteous to all people. And the question we want to answer here in this passage is why? Why should I be courteous to these people? These people are wicked. Why should I be courteous to these people? Listen to him. Listen to his answer. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Mercy. Why do we, why do we be obedient to wicked rulers? Why, do we, why are we ready for every good work? These people haven't earned our goodness, right? Why do we speak evil of no one? Why do we avoid quarreling? Why are we gentle? Why do we show perfect courtesy to all people? Because I was just like you, man. I was just like you. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, my Savior, appeared, He saved me. Not because of my righteousness, but according to His mercy. The basis of our merciful response to the wickedness of others is God's merciful response to our wickedness. Amen? So your response to the sin of others should be a reflection of God's response to your own sin. Like a mirror. should be always engaged in the reflection of God's mercy. All right, so we're going to talk a little bit about this further, but, but just three quick takeaways here if you find yourself merciless, okay? If you find yourself responding to the sin of, I don't know, maybe your kids, or I don't know, maybe your coworkers. You find yourself responding to the sin of others mercilessly. I can think of three ways to fix that. One, remember, recall your own sin. Recall your own sin. Two, remember God's mercy against the backdrop of your own sin. And three, just reflect that mercy.
Just, just be that merciful to others. And we'll talk about that later. All right, let's keep reading. Uh, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Okay, my first question here is what sort of purity is he talking about? What sort of purity? Purity in heart. What does this mean like sexual purity? What does this mean like you know, single-mindedness? These are good questions, and we have to answer those questions. I think the key to understanding what sort of purity he has in mind is actually the promise itself. For they shall see God. Okay? Shall see God. Let me show you probably one of the more, at least one of the more recalled passages in the Bible, perhaps one of the more important passages of the Bible, and I say this because it's all over the Bible, and it's right in the center of the law. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Purity of affection for God. The poor in spirit are pure in heart. Now, this is probably the most complicated sentence I've ever put on a slide, so I'm going to read it like three times. If it's not helpful, just forget about it. Um, the more fervently you chase righteousness, the more clearly you see your sin, the more profoundly you recognize God's mercy, the more ardently you love Him. Okay, I want to read that again. The more fervently you chase righteousness, the more clearly you see your sin, the more profoundly you recognize God's mercy, the more ardently you love Him. You find yourself loveless towards God? One, there's several books we can recommend. This is not a peculiar position. You should not be ashamed of finding yourself loveless before God. Okay? But the biblical prescription for loving God is to chase righteousness. To chase God Right? I want to show you what this looks like. This is Paul again in Philippians 3. For Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that, from, that which comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Why? That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in death, that by, listen to, this is Paul the Apostle talking, listen to, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. That is pure love for God. Look, Paul has already lost all things. Paul has already lost all things. Have you? Probably not. Paul has already lost all things. He's already counted the world rubbish. 
but he never stops chasing. He never stops chasing. And he presses on to gain Christ, to be found in Christ, to know Christ. The avenue to fall in love with God and to love Him in purity of heart and in purity of strength and in purity of mind is to follow Jesus on the way of righteousness. And if you're worried, like, well, what? maybe if I become so righteous, I'll be like the Pharisees. No, that's not righteousness. No, you're never going to get to a point where you're like, wow, I am there. I have gotten there because the pursuit of righteousness reminds you, wow, look at my sin. Look at my sin and God's mercy in response to my sin. That's the path of righteousness. That's why the scribes and Pharisees were so far gone. Because the moment you pursue righteousness by the way of Christ, you reflect on your own sin. Okay. The more you pursue righteousness, the more fully you'll know God's mercy. The more you know God's mercy, the less you'll desire anything else. So here's three more takeaways really really quickly. See your sin for what it is. Love God's mercy. And then pursue God's presence. It's, it's not popular talking about sin. This culture doesn't like talking about sin. Because sin means there's something seriously wrong with you. And like a, a good portion of the messages you hear in the world are, there's nothing wrong with you. But the reason that we see our sin for what it is, is because true joy is on the other side of God's mercy. True joy is on the other side of God's mercy. Okay. All right, let's keep moving. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. All right. I want to ask a question here. What does it mean to be called a son of God? What does it mean to be called a son of God? This is a more nuanced answer, I think, than you might initially believe. I want to show you two passages to demonstrate that we've got a language situation going on, a cultural idiom situation going on, so that that this is not merely reflecting on your adoption as a son. This is actually reflecting on your characteristics as a person who reminds other people of your father. Okay, so let me show you one. This is just, we're going to deal with this passage actually in a few months. You have heard that it was said, this is Jesus speaking, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and he sends rains on the just and on the unjust. You see that language there? So that you may be sons of your father. What's qualifying you to be sons of your father? Well, well, you, you're looking just like him. right? You're acting just like him. Now I'm going to show you a negative version of the same language. All right, now I'm not going to read the whole passage. 
But Jesus calls the Pharisees sons of those who murdered the prophets because they were resisting the truth and persecuting Christ to whom the prophets pointed. That's why they earned the title sons of those who murdered the prophets because they were actually in the act of murdering the prophet, right? So you're called a son when you behave like the father. We have a similar idiom. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. See where I'm going? Okay, so blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The poor in spirit are peacemakers. Here's what I think is going on here. Those who encounter the patience and mercy of God develop a profound appreciation for peacemaking. Those who encounter the patience and mercy of God develop a profound appreciation for peacemaking, for they have known the God who makes peace. And they have benefited from His peacemaking. Okay? I want to show you a passage here. I think what's going on in Ephesians 2 is brilliant. Ephesians 2 is brilliant. I mean, like the whole Bible is brilliant, but Ephesians 2 is really, really good. Um. Paul is talking to Gentiles. Listen to what he says. He says, Gentiles, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So so not just separated from Christ, but you were alienated from the Israelites, right? And strangers to the covenant of promise. You hadn't even heard these words. Having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the Christ thereby killing the hostility. You see what just happened? Christ's work reconciled vertically and horizontally. Okay, Christ's work took two different people groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, who hated one another, by the way, and he reconciled these two people groups, and then he reconciled those groups to God. Right? Peacemaking. The work of Christ is the work of Peacemaking. You were at war with men. We already read that passage in Titus. Hating and being hated. That's what characterized you. Don't ever think back and say, I was a pretty nice guy. You weren't. Maybe you were nice to some people. The world is at war. Literally and figuratively. You were at war with men and you were at war with God. But Christ has made peace among men and Christ has made peace with God. So, sons of God make peace. Sons of God make peace just like the Son of God made peace. 
All right, last one. Let's keep moving. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to read you some words of Jesus from John. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. The poor in spirit are persecuted. The poor in spirit are persecuted. Those who seek Christ's righteousness will find it. That's a promise. Those who seek Christ's righteousness will find it. And when they do, the world will respond accordingly. I want to read you three terrifying passages. Three terrifying passages in concert. First, from Acts. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We must enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. Second, from Timothy. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will... Be persecuted. Now, I'm okay with those two, sort of. I'm okay with those two, sort of. This last one is tough to read. These are words of Jesus. Woe to you when all the people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Here's what I think is going on. The world will respond to those who look and speak and act like Jesus in the same way they responded to Jesus himself. The world will respond to those who look and speak and act like Jesus in the same way they respond to Jesus himself. Here's the tough application of this promise. The New Testament's expectation that Christ's people will be persecuted is so pervasive that you should be asking questions about why it's not happening. You, in the Bible Belt, right? There's no qualifying clause here. There's no footnote. Unless you live in the Bible Belt, at which point you will be at peace with all men. This is not the kingdom. Right? This is the world. And the reason I find passages like this so terrifying is because I really want everybody to speak well of me. Right? Do you? It's not possible. If it happens, it is a signal of your infidelity to Jesus. Okay? I'm just going to let that sit there. Let that sit there. We'll actually talk 
at length about persecution and what it means for us as disciples who are called to be salt and light in May. All right, so we have now spent three weeks reflecting on Christ's promise to kingdom citizens. I want to know how to apply the Beatitudes. Let's talk for a minute about how to apply the Beatitudes. Okay. First, it all starts with spiritual bankruptcy. It all starts with spiritual bankruptcy. The foundation of every single one of these promises is spiritual bankruptcy. You don't get to hungering and thirsting after righteousness if you don't see that you've got no hope, right? You don't mourn over your sin, right? You don't mourn over your sin unless you see that you've got no hope. Don't come to Christ with almost nothing. The gospel is good news because it's preached to those who have no other avenue for joy. Okay? No other avenue. That's where your walk with Christ starts. Sin is perpetually competing for our attention, and the claim of sin is, here's another easier avenue to joy. The reason spiritual bankruptcy is, is, is a cornerstone of your way to righteousness is because you know from the beginning that that's not true. There's only one way to joy. There's only one way to peace. There's only one way to reconciliation with God. The implication of that statement is that you've lost all hope in all other ways. Does this make sense? This is why if we're walking faithfully with Jesus, it's not so hard to hear somebody complain about you. I hate, I hate hearing people complain about me because I'm like, no, I didn't do anything wrong. Right? I didn't do anything wrong. I'm like 99% sanctified. And that 1% is like Brother Lawrence territory. Right? So like you kind of believe that like in some small portion of your heart when people say, hey, brother, look, you said this, or I noticed you did this thing, and I'm concerned. The way of righteousness, paved with spiritual bankruptcy, right? Like, that, it's okay. Yeah, you're probably right. You're probably right. I, 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 I'm corrupt. I've, I've been corrupted, and that's why I need Jesus. So, like, it wouldn't surprise me if you found some aspect of my sin that I was blind to. Make sense? Okay. Second, righteousness is the way of the kingdom. Now, what I wrote yesterday in Brett's office, we were chatting about this, and I wrote, righteousness is the way and the gates and the language and the clothing of the kingdom. I felt like that was kind of long and a little weird. So I just took the others out. What I mean here is that the pursuit of the kingdom in Christ is a pursuit of righteousness. Notice the sharp edges of the Sermon on the Mount are the expectation that kingdom citizens will exhibit 
righteousness. There's been many, many people try to, to distill the Sermon on the Mount into a demonstration of all the ways that we fail so that we will see grace. Now, that's, that's a component, but the expectation to walk in the way of righteousness never goes away. Never goes away. The reason that's an important message for you is because we tend to treat the gospel as our insurance card. Right? Fire insurance, remember that? Do you want to go to hell? No. Hell sounds awful. I know a way to get to heaven. Okay, let's do that. It's Jesus. He was righteous on your behalf. Sounds great. Sign up. And you stick that in your pocket and you live the rest of your life in peace. That's not, that's not the call. It's not the call. Bonhoeffer says when Christ bids a man to follow him, he bids him to die. And that's true. Cross bearing is part of the mix. Okay? Okay. And the reason I put this as a point of application is there should never be a part of your life, a season of your life, where you're not single-mindedly pursuing righteousness. Right? You should be getting better. You should reflect on a decision you made three or six months ago with a degree of embarrassment because the Spirit working within your heart to demonstrate to you sin in your heart and to call you to greater faithfulness in Christ means that, that I did something last week that I'd never do again. Amen? Okay. Let's keep moving. All right. This, this is my soapbox. I know, I know, guys, I know sometimes you make fun of me for saying things like this too much, and I'm okay with it for now. All right? Don't claim righteousness of cause and purity of heart if you are not meek and merciful and peacemaking. What sandwiches hunger and thirst for righteousness in the Beatitudes? Meekness and mercy. What sandwiches purity of heart in the Beatitudes? Mercy and peacemaking. There's a whole segment of the evangelical Christian population that feels the call to defend the gospel. And they're the only people who are seeing the gospel in true purity. And they've got to go out there. They've got to, they've got to fight the wolves off. And their, their particular tool that they're leaning on most heavily is being awful to people. It's being awful. Don't go on social media and be a jerk and say that it's righteousness. Right? Don't do it. The way of righteousness is merciful and meek and peacemaking. Don't claim purity if you're not exhibiting these characteristics of the Father. Follow the logic. Follow the logic. If God responded to our sin, 
the way these guys are responding to the misunderstandings of others, we'd all be goners by now, right? There's patience exhibited. Now, that's not to say there's not judgment. And that's not to say they're not right. But you ought to be meek. You have, you have received the patience of God. You've received the mercy of God. You have been a beneficiary of the peacemaking of God. So before you go fire that gun on social media, reflect. Reflect on your own sin and God's patience, God's mercy. Okay? Okay. If you want to talk about that later, that's fine. Okay. Next, mercilessness is a signal that you don't understand the weight of your sin. Okay? Mercilessness is a signal that you don't understand the weight of your sin. And I don't just mean mercilessness with your peers. I mean mercilessness with your kids. Right? I mean mercilessness with your pastor. <laughs> Here's what I mean. Grasping the mercy of God is a work in tandem with grasping the gravity of your sin. Right? You, you, you understand the mercy of God to the degree that you understand the gravity of your own sin. Okay? And if you have truly reflected on the mercy of God because you understand the gravity of your own sin, you do reflect that mercy. You reflect that mercy. Okay? So, if you find yourself responding to the sin of others in a merciless manner, I don't think the answer is, oh man, I need to be more merciful. Next time, next time I'll be more merciful. I'm going to really try hard to be merciful. I don't think that's the avenue to being more merciful. I think the avenue to being more merciful is to take days out of your calendar. To take vacation and go sit in a cabin and remember who you are and who you were and all the works of grace and mercy that have been poured out on you. Okay? I think that's the way. All right. Next, do you want to love God more? Do you want to love God more? Dwell on His mercy and His peacemaking. This kind of works the same way as the last point of application. Remembering your sin causes you to reflect on His patience and mercy. And it's very difficult to reflect on the patience and mercy and peacemaking of God without growing in affection for Him. Read the prodigal son story, right? This kid was a, is an idiot and a jerk. And he ran away and he wasted all of his father's stuff. And when his father sees him on the horizon, he runs and embraces him, filthy, smelling like pig gruel, right? He embraces him and he says, come on, we're going to throw a party because you're here now. You were dead and now you're alive. Right? 
You are the prodigal son in that story. And he is the father who's chasing, running down the avenue to find you and hug you. Sometimes I think we're so intentional about reflecting on the glory and the holiness of God that we forget that he is the father who embraces his children. He's the husband that that longs jealously for his bride. Okay? Reflect on that mercy and that peacemaking. Spend time reflecting on it. And you love him more. Uh, Okay, second to last point of application. If everyone likes you, you may not be following Jesus. (laughs) I'm sorry. Now, what that doesn't mean is that if somebody doesn't like you for good reasons, it's because you're following Jesus well, okay? So I see that. I see it in my own heart. I see it in the hearts of others. So don't just say, well, you'd like me if you love Jesus. (laughs) It's not what's going on. Fidelity to the gospel, to the righteous cause of Christ, means that the world is going to be pretty uncomfortable with you. You should expect it. And if, if that's not your situation, ask the Lord to show you infidelity in your heart to the kingdom. And He will. Okay. Last thing. Are you weary? Are you tired? Has it been a long month or a long year or a long decade? Remember the kingdom promises. Remember the kingdom promises. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. You will be comforted. You will inherit the earth. You will be satisfied. You will receive mercy. You will see God. You will be called sons and daughters of God. Yours will be the kingdom. These promises are issued not just to call you to faithfulness, but to comfort you in the way of faithfulness. Amen? Okay. We're going to celebrate the kingdom that was purchased with the blood of Christ at the table this morning. Before we do that, let's, let's pray again.